everyone. I want to welcome you to the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. This is your host, Pete Quinones. I invited Ryan and Scott Dawson to come on the show. Ryan has been on the show many times. He is the host of the Anti-Neocon Report, ancreport.com. And this will be Scott's first appearance. He and Ryan have collaborated on a website called DawsonTime.com. I asked them to come on because they are both Civil War historians. And I asked them to talk about the real reason why the South seceded, the real reason why the North invaded, get into tactics, especially naval, talk about a couple battles, talk about northern war crimes. We really get into a lot of detail here, and this is information you're not going to hear when most people talk about the quote-unquote civil war. So I think you're going to learn a lot, and I really enjoy doing this one. So without any further delay, here are Ryan and Scott Dawson. All right, let's just jump into this. Um, I got Ryan and Scott Dawson here, and we are going to talk about the Civil War and especially what the North really wanted to invade the South about. So um, who wants to go first? Well, we some people call it the Civil War. Some well, we call, call it the War of Northern <laughs> Aggression or that Southern scumbag Lincoln's War. Yeah. <laughs> the Lincoln, the tyrant. Yeah, the or, or Southern Independence. As, a, as another way it's been phrased, or attempted independence, because a lot of them saw it that way. Uh, it's not taught that way in school, but most wars are lied about. Could, can you imagine in the future, what are they going to say about the second Iraq war? Like, how are they going to spend that? Because they've never fessed up in mass media or anywhere else. Like, you and I know the real reasons for all the recent wars in Libya, Iraq, etc., but how will they be painted in history? Like, what is the official textbook in school going to say? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be garbage. And it's the same thing with the Civil War and every war in between. Do you think Hummel's book is good at all? Um, on the Civil War? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, I think my favorite Civil War book's probably from Charles Adams. I always forget the name. In times of what is it called? <laughs> I don't is know. That... There's there's a lot, a lot, a lot. There's too many to pick from to have a favorite for me. But um, what the general theme that that you get from anyone that has um, really looked at the primary sources, uh, not just of all the battles, but of all the politics leading up to the war itself, uh, North and South, anybody that you talk to they're going to bring up this issue of tariffs and that is along with slavery, the, the two um, causes of the war that are most well known to people. But I don't think most people understand the details of the tariff issue. And uh, you know, that's what I, what I find talking to the general public anyway is most people have never heard of any of that stuff. And, and it's a major, major uh, theme and cause of the war. So, And it wasn't always like that. It was prior to the 1960s, it was always taught as the causes, plural, of the Civil War. And often the present colors the past. So during the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, of course, World War II and the Civil War and everything else has to be about race and so slavery, <clears throat> liberating people, etc. And that happens a lot. It's uh, whatever is going on now gets sort of 
pushed on to what happened in the past. And you can, there's certainly slavery was a issue in the 1860s, but that definitely wasn't the reason for the war or, or secession. It was a reason for some people. But the main reason for the war is the South was invaded. The reasons for secession were different from state to state. Tariffs. <laughs> but mainly from tariffs. Yeah. yeah. And the reason the North wanted to go into the war, most of them didn't actually. Most of the army was conscripts or foreigners. Over 40% of Lincoln's army, by the end, you had 250,000 Irish, 200,000 Germans. They were, they were not willing participants in that war. But of the people, the movers and shakers that actually make policy, uh, congressmen, businessmen, lobbyists, they did want the war. If you had a, a foundry or you were in the railroad industry, you certainly wanted and needed the war and needed the tariffs that caused the war. But your basic uh, farmer in Ohio or something, it, they didn't want to go fight the South, right? And so you'll find that uh, it was very reluctant on their part. And not all of the South was uh, wanted to leave the Union either, there were, especially North Carolina. There was uh, East Tennessee, West Carolina, and West Virginia, which became its own state even, were, were pro-Union by and large. But the majority of the state voted secede, so it would secede. But North Carolina was the last state to secede and didn't do so until May 20th, almost a month after Lincoln put a blockade on his own states. Yeah. South Carolina, however, <laughs> completely different story. So mm -hmm. they were a lot more affected by the Morrell tariff. And um, what what happened, if you really take it back is is um a tariff is a tax on imports and exports of course and you've got about a 15 percent to 20 percent rate prior to 1824 a little bump in 18 um 16 which was the pay for the war of 1812 that was but supposed to be temporary too it was a 20 percent right. tariff that would go down within three years right but then uh, as as peter and i were talking earlier about the real reason there would be a depression in 1819 is because of central banking policies, but everybody had a different thing to blame it on. And of course, by 1819, uh, they tried to, or 1820, excuse me, they tried to increase the tariff. The entire South voted against it and, and did were they were successful in blocking it. But by 1824 through Henry Clay, Henry Clay and others pro, uh, tariff and this is not just a normal tariff for revenue these are protectionist tariffs that are favoring certain industries you can guess which ones they are uh, they increase the tariff dramatically and it would particularly hurt states like South Carolina which had I think the second largest port city or maybe the largest port city at the time in the south uh, and grew cash crops cotton uh, especially the United States was providing 80% of all cotton exports in the world. And the majority of the cotton within the United States was coming from South Carolina. And a lot of other goods from North Carolina, et cetera, were going down to Charleston to be exported overseas. So that tariff was going to dramatically smash that state. They raised it to 35% from 20 when 20 was already high. And South Carolina in the first two years lost over 25% of their exports. What happens is if you've got all the manufacturing goods being made in the North and the South is agricultural, 
then the South is buying manufactured goods from the North. But they weren't. They were buying most of their manufactured goods from France and England because it was better and it was cheaper. But with the high tariffs, you can't because anything that's being brought in, the price just went up. So it forces you to buy domestically and then they can raise their prices artificially as long as they're still a little bit lower than um, foreign. At the same time, everything that you're selling, all of this cotton, tobacco, rice, which is specifically taxed, they specifically picked out. It wasn't a blanket um, tariff on everything going in and out. It was just what the South was selling. Only specific goods. You could sell your iron and not have to pay one, but cotton did. And so it was crushing the Southern economy and then forcing them to buy manufactured goods. So the North at least in the, the industrial areas of the North, like Philadelphia, they were making bank. And it was worse than today where you have lobbyists that influence politicians. The lobbyists were the politicians. Thaddeus Stevens is probably the most powerful guy in Congress. And he owned an iron foundry in Pennsylvania. They were laying thousands of miles of railroad track that went nowhere just, just to get the government contract to do it. The government was allocating money to itself and the South was absolutely appalled and they um, refused after another increase in the tariff uh, to 50% and just four years later in 1828, they um, in South Carolina at least just called it null and void, the nullification crisis, 1832. They've, come back and they give them this kind of BS slow staircase, gradual lowering of the tariff. And, uh, the no supposed to come crisis. in two year intervals. Yeah. Yeah. Nullification crisis in, in South Carolina, along with Mississippi as well, really fought hard against it. And they got it lowered all the way back down to 15 and the Northern industrialists were angry. But it stayed like that until 1860 when it went up to 37 and then 47, which would make the South like a third world country. And Thaddeus Stevens told an audience in New York and in Congress, he said it as well, that the, um, it would cripple the South, and, but it would make them rich so they should do it. So it was just unabashed, selfish, admittedly, like unapologetic, doesn't care. He knows what's going to happen, and they're pushing it through. And because the northern states uh, have so much higher population than the south, they could pass whatever they wanted, and the south really had no voice. So for, the, for South Carolina at this point, they were looking at it the same way they looked at the Revolutionary War against England. They were being unfairly taxed and couldn't do anything about it in the government. No one was threatening slavery. Nobody was trying to – People have this illusion that um, the North wanted to end slavery or Lincoln wanted to, so the South seceded so they could keep their slaves. And that is a myth. They seceded because of these tariffs. No one had mentioned slavery at all. And well, when okay. well hold, on. Hold, hold on, hold on. People will say that the ordinances of secession by the, by the several states um, mention slavery in there. Some of sure. them do. But they mention the tariff a lot more. Slavery is a is a part of the um, war. It, it's all it's hard to talk about both at the same time. That's just kind of an undeniable thing that I feel like people already know. But they it is not as clear cut black and white like 
you want free slaves, they don't. It, it wasn't like that when the war began, at least. It kind of becomes that in the middle, right, about wanting to end slavery. And there was a paranoia in the South. Sort of like Iraq. Sort of like Iraq was sort of like Iraq was about WMDs and then, then, then two liberating years later Kurds, it's about yeah. liberating Kurds and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, right. sl- slavery ends as a result of the war, thank God. I mean, if it ended for the wrong reason, who cares? At least that, you know, in this part of the world anyway, was ended. And that, that's a whole other discussion. And The, the but, Emancipation Proclamation doesn't come till two years into, into the middle the of the war. And it yeah. doesn't free the slaves in the border states. You have to realize five of the states with guys wearing blue, pointing guns at the South, all slaveholding, plus Delaware and West Virginia. And, and the, the capital, capital. D.C. had 3,000 um, slaves, whereas a state like Arizona had a grand total of 22, right? So there's... There's a lot of arguments about the West. Are are they going to be a slave state or not? But the South gave up all claims to the West. They didn't try to expand West. They they just wanted to be their own country. And the tariff issue was at the forefront of that in the beginning. And a lot of people on the South, you know, if they're not a giant cotton plantation owner, they didn't really care as much. They didn't weren't affected by this tariff as bad. And, you know, they're living hand to mouth either way, but they're the ones that are going to be asked to fight. You got, you got like evil, rich, selfish people on both sides. It's not like a good guy, a bad guy. This is just what happened. And there, but it's more, the tariff issue is usually not brought up at all. And it is the primary reason in the beginning. They use slavery as propaganda, this paranoia that they spread to try the country was so racist, they figured that would get them support if they said North was trying to end slavery. Lincoln, to counter this propaganda, the first sentence in his uh, inaugural address, as soon as he became president, first thing he said is, if I can preserve the union and free no slave, I will do it. And he went on and on and on about it and made it crystal clear he wasn't trying to free any slaves. The South was using that as propaganda against the North to get support. Which is sick because it shows that that that's how racist of a place it was if that tactic would work. And then Lincoln had to go out of his way to to say, no, 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 we are not trying to free any slaves. And it was true. The North was not trying to free anybody. And And even a few years into the war, when they did finally issue the Emancipation Proclamation, it didn't go in effect until a few months later. And it gave this huge window of if anyone wants to rejoin the union right now, you can keep all your slaves and just come on back in. We've got northern states with slaves like Delaware and Kentucky and things. So Missouri. if you join back now, you can keep your slaves. Also, any area like in Virginia and down in um, Louisiana where the northern army had already taken over, they were exempt. Tennessee was exempt. It was it – was, um, put by Charles Dickens when he read the emancipation, he said, so it's only immoral and illegal to own slavery if you're in rebellion against the U S but if you come back now, or if you're already in, you can keep your slaves, the union, the union, the union, like that's, that's what he wanted. And he wanted the union because he wanted the tax. The South was paying 95% of all the revenue from 25% of the population 95% 95% of all the money the government got was coming from these tariffs. 
and they spent every dime of it on themselves. Even before Lincoln's tariff, they were paying 87% of the tax, right? That's why they were pushing for nullification and, and different secessionist movements before that. It's also worth noting that there were people who argued elegantly against it, like uh, Thomas Jefferson's cousin, John Randolph. You know, he said a protective tariff is a hidden tax. It increases the cost of living and the net gain to manufacturers is also a net loss to the consumer. And yeah. he would go on to division of labor and comparative advantages. He would end up, most economists would say, right uh, nowadays. But when, in the issue of slavery, they put that in the secession papers. And because I know the, the basic lost cause argument is always, well, the vice president was a racist and he said this thing about slaves. And it's in this, it's in Mississippi and South Carolina secession papers with slavery, this and that. The appeal there was saying a lot of the northerners, they, they hated blacks and they didn't want free black men coming up and living in the North. And like all the border States had slaves. They didn't want to, to lose those States. They're making an appeal of what they thought the North would find agreeable. And it's sort of like saying, Oh, we're going in Afghanistan for women's rights or something. You can definitely point to the lack of women's rights in Afghanistan, but it has absolutely nothing to do with why we invaded Afghanistan. We had Afghanistan for opium. Uh, and well, well we've made Afghanistan twice. <laughs> the the Revolutionary War, when the British and were fighting in the United States, they did free slaves whenever they could. But that that war wasn't about slavery. However, it seemed like a war advantage when they got here, and so they did free a lot of slaves in the North and the South. Because at that time, all the Northern states had slaves as well. New York had a higher percentage of slavery than North Carolina in the 1700s. And the British did free them when they could, but that wasn't their war objective. And they didn't start doing that until the middle of the war. And the civil war is no different. The, to make the it North really, really crystal start, clear. Before the war begins. Slaves, thank God. We get in here. Before the war begins, uh, Congressman from Ohio, Corwin, they issued the Corwin Amendment to the Constitution. And the, the Corwin Amendment is verbatim stated no amendment shall be made to the constitution which will authorize or give congress the power to abolish or interfere within any state with the domestic institutions thereof including that of persons held to labor or service by the laws of said state which means slaves so you cannot interfere in the institution of slavery and uh, ohio and new york introduced this the amendment passed with the northern states and it would have been ratified. You need a two-thirds supermajority, though. And the seven, the first seven states to secede uh, refused to vote. And so here they had a chance for a constitutional amendment that was promising to never end slavery, to not interfere. You could end it yourself as a state. But the federal government could not come in and tell you that you have to end slavery. And they still seceded anyway because that was never the real primary reason why they were leaving. They were paying 87% of the taxes, not being represented, and it was all going into, it wasn't even going to the North. It was going to Philly, Boston, and New York, and railroad companies. And the railroad companies have been hit hard because of the crisis of 1857. There's a gold crisis. And, then, and this, yeah. you have to understand that first, uh, foreign trade is greatly reduced with Britain because of the 1857 rebellion going on in India. And so they're 
dealing with that on that side of the pond. And then you had a gold ship from California. Yeah. Yep. That lost like $54 million, which is an enormous amount of money at the time, worth of gold when it wrecked off of the Carolinas from a hurricane. And a lot of these New York banks and things, they were going to go insolvent. They needed this gold uh, to back their paper systems, and it didn't arrive. And this would mess with the railroad securities that had already been sold. So everybody's expanding out west, especially to Kansas. And the this every all the railroad industry started to fall apart. You had uh, six or seven of them go under because their private investment just wasn't there. And that caused, you know, uh, a reduction in internal shipping of goods, consumer goods between the West and the East and the North. And so it had this cascading effect on the economy, but not in the South where there weren't a lot of railroads and their economy wasn't based on that. And they weren't so tied to banks like the North was. And so the South realized, Oh, you need us after all, huh? But Lincoln would come in as the original neocon to marry business and state. It was the, when industry captured government, like everything that libertarians complain about, it's, that was Lincoln because he took giant subsidies for railroad, steel, timber, etc. And slavery did not end until after Lincoln was dead. So not only could they not, the South did not stay, even though the Corbin Amendment offered them slavery uh, if they would stay in the Union, but after the war was over, with just the North voting, they couldn't pass the 13th Amendment. It failed on the first attempt with only Northern states voting. And it wasn't until after Lincoln was shot uh, that they finally passed the 13th Amendment. But it didn't actually enslave on anything but paper because they turned right around and enslaved the Chinese to help finish the railroads going to San Francisco. And then they continued this funny money business of paying people in script on into the 1920s in the north yeah it's it's there's no good guys in this story you know the only good thing that comes out of it even though it was for totally selfish reasons was slavery does end thank god something good came out of all this selfishness because both but sides it, were being <clears throat> acting in self-interest which you slavery find was on its way out anyway though i mean the and, southern the csa constitution forbid the transatlantic slave trade just as jefferson had set up virginia yeah. had come one vote shy of abolishing slavery in their state before any of this went down it was starting to get phased out and the, the thing is though people were so racist and this is the entire country like lincoln was a white separatist he was trying to find a way to deport free men and blacks or newly freed slaves outside the United States to Liberia, to Haiti, or to Central America. And they actually spent $600,000 on this, over half a million dollars relocating people, many of whom just died, because he did not believe that blacks and whites could live together. And then Liberia I hear this- speaks English today because of it. Yeah, I hear this romanticized version of Lincoln, like he was the great emancipator. And I was like, he didn't, he was, completely thought the white race was superior. He didn't want people to mix blood. His argument for why he didn't want Kansas to be a slave state, is he says whites and blacks should not be together anywhere where they aren't already. And that if we don't have slaves in Kansas, then whites and blacks won't mix blood at all. 
that's the mindset that you're dealing with some of these politicians. General Grant had slaves. He's the principal general. He becomes the president of the United States later. Didn't free his slaves, had them the entire war. So it's, it's just hypocrisy and, and uh, just ignorance, really, to say, well, you've got several slaveholding states fighting against the South with non-slaveholding states. They enslaved other people after the war and murdered Native Americans. This idea that there's some altruistic, anti-racist uh, abolitionists or whatever in the North, one of the main reasons of the few groups that did want to end slavery wanted so out of their own interest it wasn't because they had sympathy for africans it's because they saw it as another way to undermine the southern economy because they're in competition of building railroads from chicago to california versus new orleans to california and they realized they can undermine the industry by doing that so it wasn't some altruistic movement there were some real abolitionists in the north and the south but that was definitely a minority faction in, in any part of the country. Well, do you want to um, jump in a little yeah. bit to the beginning of the war? Like maybe talk about Sumter and what really happened there? Sure. I mean, that's, uh, I'll well, take the, Do you want that one, Scott? Or It's where they're I physically sure, collecting um, tar- the export taxes, right? They didn't, it's, it's, it is that Fort Sumter is out yeah, in the they, water. And that's what South Carolina yeah, is like, you're not part of, you can't collect taxes because we're not part of the United States. And Lincoln tried to force it anyway, right? And a lot of people in his own cabinet were fighting with him saying, just don't do that. This is going to start a war. Let him have the fort. We can negotiate and smooth this out afterward. His own, his first secretary of the treasurer, uh, Seward, like sewage, argued that very same point. He's the guy that made the greenbacks, not Lincoln. It was the secretary of the treasurer who had aspirations to be president it would never happen. But his name was William Henry Seward, but they, there are different divides. Yeah. He got stabbed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Lincoln wanted to start the war, uh, but he wanted support for the war at the same time. And the North really wasn't that gung ho about it. So he needed the South to fire the first shot. And he put he he took advantage. I mean, it's evil, but it is smart. I give him credit. Um, he takes a ship. I believe it's called the Queen of the West. And so long as they keep resupplying the troops that are sitting there um, in the middle of Charleston Harbor, it's a humiliating thing for South Carolina to have seceded and claimed to be their own country. And there's a fort sitting right there. And they told him, "Don't don't resupply them." you know, they've got to go, blah, blah, blah. It was kind of standoff. And Lincoln knew that if he did it, they would have to fire on him. And if they didn't, then their entire legitimacy would look ridiculous if he just continued to do what he wanted. And the South did fire and bombarded the fort and it, it starts the war. And it's very, very little bloodshed to what ended up being the bloodiest war United States ever had. I don't believe no one anyone. died. The only person that died was from a misfire from within the fort right. that killed himself. They weren't really trying to annihilate him. The first people actually shot in the Civil War were in Maryland by Union troops from Massachusetts that were changing rail lines. So they had to march through Baltimore uh, to get back on the line to go to D.C. And the crowd was booing and hissing. So they fired into it and then the crowd fired back and. Maryland state song is the, the lyrics are named after that event, but that's the U S government shooting civilians 
Uh, and the, that's the first real shots fired that, that murdered innocent people in the Civil War by the Yankees. Yeah, and, and Maryland ended up staying in the Union. But um, it, it's a disgusting war. There's, there's like endless, endless primary sources of gang rape and just horrible, horrible, you know, the same crap that goes on in every war that you try not to know about uh, for years. And it, it's just a devastating time. You get a generation of cripples and people missing limbs out in all the, all the towns and cities. They're just hundreds of thousands of people perish from uh, disease on top of the combat. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible war. A lot uh, of prisoners for greed for, for money, man. It was, it really was when you look at it, you want to believe it was about slavery to justify such a horrible, horrible four years, the worst this country's ever experienced North and South. I mean, North lost more men than the South did fighting. They lost a lot of the battles. It was a terrible, terrible war. And for what? So you want to believe, well, but it ended slavery and it did like that happened, but it wasn't, that's not why they began the war. The war did not have to happen. It was just unfettered greed that led to it. In uh, a way, not, like not just on the not. northern part either. It, it was really uncompromising and bullheaded on both sides. When you look at it, it it's ridiculous. Um, Women's suffrage comes about from the world wars, but that wasn't the goal. Yeah. Right? But they learned, oh, I can work too. And da, da, da. Uh, well, of course, they knew that. And a lot of them knew it's, that anyway. But it's the it's, end of a free market for a time that the South really believed in kind of Adam Smith, you know, free market economy and, and the North did not. They liked mercantilism, which they called protective tariffs because that's what it is. And there's a battle still today a little bit about that. And it, it's, um, it's an unfair market when you can levy a tariff that's what, that hurts one region and not the other. They'd had issues with this forever um, in Europe as well before the United States was here. And so the founding fathers put it in the U.S. Constitution very clearly not to tariff any one state or region un unfairly and, uh, you know, it's not a, it's to Article 1, Section states. 8. It should be uniform. The key word is uniform. But Henry yeah. Clay had a different interpretation of that, and they believed in protectionist policies. And the thing yeah. is, even with protectionist tariffs, your gains are temporary. You know, at first, you're kind of creating monopolies and you're forcing people to buy your goods because you're making market competition too expensive by hiking tariffs on them. But what ends up happening, and a, a guy that Rothbard even quoted that put it so elegantly, John Tyler from Caroline, uh, explained it as, first of all, the tariff is a tax because it's a hidden tax in the sense that all your consumer products are now going to cost more than they would have because you've gotten rid of market competition. This is a lot like U.S. healthcare, by the way. Uh, so what they do is uh, your goods cost too much. So what happens at first, people have to buy the goods, but then they just cut back on consumption because if they don't have the money, like you're assuming, oh, people just have endless money and we just charge more, they'll buy that and we'll make more. But what if they just consume less? That's always what ends up happening. 
And when they consume less, then your industry fails job-wise. You don't have as many products to sell because they're too expensive. And then there's also the retaliatory response from the people you're tariffing are going to tariff you back. And so you have reduced exports, uh, which lowers the, uh, your commodity value. And that further shrinks the industry and you end up in a depression. They didn't care whammy. about the long term. They cared about making money personally and getting out while the getting's good. These guys making the policy own the iron foundries. They own the railroads. They didn't just take money from lobbies. The term lobbyist actually comes from General Grant's administration, which is widely regarded as the probably the worst president ever by everybody, North and South. It's just undeniable. The corruption was ridiculous. And he met with um, lobbyists in the lobbyist hotels because it was illegal to meet with them in the Capitol at the White House. So he's uh, he's always in the lobby of the hotel because then he was at it wasn't really usually drunk at a personal per like a person's house or whatever. There was some laws that this was the loophole of where he could meet with them. And he did constantly. It, it's it's disgusting because lobbyists continue to rule now and um now it's luncheons and golf courses but they used to be hotel lobbies <laughs> right and it and it's still you still have at least a good portion of congress that are completely at at the whim of whoever's giving them the money and that that isn't new um and it wasn't new at the civil war either it's always been that way and that's, um, I don't know how to change that, but you can't find a time in history where it's not like that in the United States. To least. make a point too on how little a voice the South had, like why would you secede? It seems extreme. The tariff, which wasn't even the highest tariff of 1824, they did try to vote on it. And 47 out of 48 Southern representatives voted no. And it just passed anyway. The North realized it could allocate itself money because it had more representatives. E even the, the check of the Senate didn't matter because they slightly had more senators. And this is another reason the Western states are so important too. adding states and making it such a way, then you get two more senators. Uh, so they were able to just vote themselves money at the expense of almost half the country. And they continued to do that for decades until enough states got sick of it and said we're out and the south wasn't got, going to invade the north they had no plans of raiding new york or anything like that they just wanted to to uh be left alone and run their affairs on their own they got too greedy with the morale tariff it it was too much it pushed too far and it pushed them over the edge the um slavery issue throughout um was really kind of a battle over senate seats as they knew if if uh, a new state came in to the West, the North is going to dominate the House of Representatives no matter what. But as far as the Senate, if they could get enough slave states to have senators and control the Senate, then they could continue to have slavery, which they wanted. And the few abolitionists that were pushing um, to control the Senate, really, we also could control the tariff completely because they already had the house and they didn't necessarily have to have somebody though, that was against slavery. 
They just needed somebody that was pro tariff. And um, so, the, so it's undeniable that slavery is one of the causes of the Civil War because there's all of the different feuds over trying to expand slavery out west. At least this is the picture that's kind of painted in school except that the critical fact that confederacy gave up all claims to all western territory they didn't want to spread anything and the north had never once advocated ending slavery in the south they only wanted to keep it from spreading so they could dominate the senate so they're both being extremely selfish i mean one side has slaves hard to root for that side the other side also technically has some slaves because of the border states but they're just being unabashedly selfish with um the tariffs so there's no there's no good guys and it's just a horrible mess and uh i don't understand why we can't um learn about it for what it was though other than the fact that it is exactly what's going on now with the lobbyist control and everything. It's just a more extreme example. You're looking at it at a government point of view. You got to look at it at a citizen point of view. The typical Southerner that picked up a gun and fought in the war did so out of state pride and defend his land because Sherman and others were going down and burning cities, raping, looting, pillaging, and murdering and they had to defend them physically defend themselves from an invading army. They didn't have slaves. Two-thirds of the South didn't have slaves. That was a very rich, elite people owned slaves. And the majority of the soldiers never seen a slave, didn't own any slaves, and never ever going to own any slaves. That's not why they were fighting. You read their letters home uh, and uh, to their own families. Is up. They're not talking about slavery. They're talking about the the damn Yankees that are invading and uh, impeding on their way of life. They're not talking about the tariffs so much either. It's the main reason they fought is because people were burning their cities down. They sent armies down there to wipe them out. The same reason Native Americans fought the U.S. Army, because the U.S. Army came there to kill them. And that included genocidal psychopaths from the Union, like Sherman, the only Good Indian's a dead Indian. That was him. So was the final solution. Uh, and Custer, who, you right. know, he, he got his comeuppance at least, but, but he tried to wipe, just wipe people out. Uh, and they did it for industry. I mean, what's, what is the point of traveling west to murder people you've never met? Well, because they're Indian. They were racist. Uh, that's part of it. But they just wanted their stuff. They wanted their land. They wanted the Black Hills. They wanted the gold. They wanted more wealth, and they would take it by force. And they did it to their own in the South, and they were willing to do it, uh, obviously, to Native Americans later. And the things that happened there, again, rape, murder, uh, arson, and some of these people are heroicized, which is sickening. Uh, but you should see it what it is. But you see now. Uh, they raped more black than white. That's a, an unknown fact as well as the Northern Jim Murphy's Army. got a book about that. Yeah. It's called it's, I, I Had Rather Die. And it goes over rape in the Civil War and all the hundreds of thousands of cases of syphilis in the Union Army where they'd spread her among themselves. 
from yeah. from the the rape that happened after the war too, and from these carpet baggers and going down, and there was nothing anybody could do about it, no one to say, no police, no one there to defend you, a lot of uh, widowed uh, wives that would they would go into these large mansions in Georgia and just steal what they felt like, rape whoever was there. There was nothing that could be done about it. They burned Atlanta, just burned the whole city. Uh, they burned Columbia. That's that's the kind of war is hell. And, and Europe and others that were watching this war were aghast because no one did that. Like even in war, there's gentlemen's agreement. Like let's not fight in the winter, and let's like nobody just burn houses down like that. That's a not since barbarian times did people fight like that. But that was the attitude Sherman had. And they, he just felt like you're not even human. And we're just, we're gonna tear it up, loot, burn, pillage. Yeah, people tried they to did hide stuff. If they tried to hide their wealth, he would grab a family member and have several men choke them to death with a leather and um, go ahead and keep choking people to death until somebody said where the silverware was or whatever. He did. It wasn't just like um, And if anybody fired on him, like, like a militia or something. He would just take canister and kill five civilians. Just blam. And uh, so, you know, absolutely ruthless. And so a lot of Southerners see the, the battle flag for veterans and say statues of Robert E. Lee or Jackson or whoever. They're symbols of defiance, which is why the U.S. government hates it and why they're willing to work with Antifa, you know, look the other way as they're tearing things down although they overstepped their bounds because they started going after founding fathers, Jefferson, Lincoln, George Washington. It doesn't matter to these Marxist communists. They're, they're ready to destroy all of us. What's US funny history. is Karl Marx agreed with the Confederacy. He wrote it down. He said how it was nothing more than a, a tariff war. And like the whole thing we've just been saying, Karl Marx agreed. Charles Dickens agreed. A lot of the people not in the United States saw it for what it was, but when you're a illiterate farmer, you don't know what's going on. It's easy for us to look back and just read everything and know what's going on. But the average soldier North and South, they didn't know anything about what we're talking about. A lot of these towns didn't even have a newspaper. So they're, they're just kind of, you know, ushered into this thing. And those are the ones that, that sacrifice the most and die are the people that had nothing to do with creating it. Abraham Lincoln would shut your paper down if you didn't say the right thing. Nowadays, you don't have to do that. Like Biden's got them all in his pocket, right? Or the establishment is, is just is what it is. There are no dissenting voices. You can't even say something on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube. If you go astray, you're a little bit too anti-war, they'll just cut your channel off, right? And it's been like that since the time of Lincoln. I have an announcement to make. Some people said they want to support the show, but they don't want to support Patreon. So I set up a Subscribestar account. It has everything and all the levels that are on Patreon. If you go to freemanbeyondthewall.com forward slash SSS, there is a link to my Subscribestar, or you can go to Subscribestar and just search Free Man Beyond the Wall. Of course, you can always support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Raider. Also, paypal.me forward slash Raider. And you can support me on my website, freemanbeyondthewall.com forward slash store, where you can do it for crypto or you can do it for fiat. Thank you very much.
Ryan, you mentioned something that I'd like you guys to address. It was earlier. Um, you talked about state pride and that's something that, that never comes up in the conversation that most of these men considered Virginia or Georgia to be their own country. It's like their homeland. And that's something that, that was lost after the war because everything became federal. And, you know, with the 14th amendment, you got the federal citizen and everything like that. So you can, can you talk to the attitude before the war about how, especially Southerners felt about their home States? Yeah. It's the United States with an S not the United State. Right. Um, But it's weird. The language even changed because prior to the civil war, people used to say the United States are. And after the civil war, it was the United States is. And when you're saying is, you you might as well drop the S off of states. Um, But yes, people thought of very proud of their state. It was a country. Nowadays, a few people see it that way. They're just, it's America. Like we're part of America or, uh, or the United States. They don't think so much of I'm a Californian, I'm a Virginian, I'm a, you know, we're New Yorker or whatever. Some people do have a little bit of city pride, I guess. Uh, and the only state that really has state pride probably is Hawaii. They, they feel special. Texas. About their, yeah. Okay. <laughs> a little bit, but there's not, they, they still put America ahead of all else, but you know, there are no highways, no cell phones, no phones at all. None. You don't have communication contact a little bit with telegram, whatever, but your area is your area. That's your country. Essentially. You don't know what's going on in the Nevada territory or whatever, if you live in Florida or something. Um, And they really, there was a real cultural divide between North and South since the Hamilton Jefferson divide. And it also comes from the way the U S was colonized by different ways of immigrants and even different parts of England as to an immediate cultural divide between the Virginia colony and Massachusetts and the Carolina colonies. And that just grew and grew. But if someone's gone, like when General Lee was asked to lead the Union Army for the United States, which this is a career uh, military person that helped win the Mexican War, who had, had, he's got a long list of feats for the U.S. Army. And then he says, I'm from Virginia. My heart is in Virginia. He's going to side with Virginia in the war. And when Virginia seceded, so did he. And he was the best. He was the top graduate from West Point. That's who the Union Army wanted to lead their army. But he's from Virginia, and he put Virginia first above the United States, which he had been in Texas. He had fought in Mexico. He'd done many things for the U.S. Army, as had other uh, Confederate commanders, generals, and so on. They sided with their state because that's how people thought back then. My state is is mine and we're we're in alliance with these other states as part of the united states but that's not my country this is and it's be virginia in that case yeah yeah they had a lot more states rights like the laws were completely different in the different states i mean today you have whatever marijuana is legal here and not there and there's like a couple examples but back then it there's if you did visit another state, you 
probably ha almost have to ask somebody about the laws. They're so different. Um, they had a lot more independence and a lot more autonomy than now. Also, what happened to make our our homogenization, I guess, between the states was television, radio, things like that, where the state propaganda could go out. You all see the same sitcoms. You're all getting the same movies and brainwashing and so on. But uh, not everybody was reading the same books and things back then, and there wasn't any television at all or radio. And so there wasn't some common national conscious. It was, I'm from whatever state you're from. And things were the way they were. And people, there were different uh, sects of Christianity, which now is all sort of blended together. But it was very regional at the time. Baptists here, Methodists there, Catholics there. It was just how it was. And that was more important to them also. Uh, nowadays, I think one sect of Christianity can't even tell you the difference between itself and another one besides Protestant and Catholic you'd start dividing up the different Protestant groups and they don't even know the difference or history between each other. Some up people do, but the sort of tacit Christian, it's not, it's not uh, an ingrained part of the culture like it used to be. It's, it's not a point of division. It's not a point of division yeah. anymore, but that's pro some progress at least. <laughs> well, something that isn't really brought up a lot in discussions of the war is the naval battles. What were the naval battles like and how, from what I understand from my reading, it really changed warfare a lot, um, tactics, um, because I guess they had to imp improving, um, improving technology, things like that. So I think, Scott, I think that's your, uh, yeah, your wheelhouse, right? So mm -hmm. It is. So then the North had a Navy that was pretty good. Not as good as England, but there, there are the U.S. before the war already had a respectable navy, but it went up a hundredfold by the end. They, first, they had the monumental task of blockading the South, which is miles and miles and miles of coastline, and they figured they'd focus on the big ports like New Orleans and Charleston. South knew that and and armed in those cities with cannons and what what have you, but. The, the South was using a lot of um, just super remote places. You didn't need a port city to cause hell for the North. Hatteras Island is about as remote of a place you can get off North Carolina. And little tiny fishing ships armed with one cannon apiece were operating out of there. Stole 22 ships from the North in one month. And that's just like a very small operation, but it was costing millions of dollars for the northern um, insurance companies that were insuring the cargo on these ships and the ships themselves. So they got together and petitioned Gideon Wells, the Secretary of the Navy, to do something about the nest of pirates at Hatteras. And the, and the northern Navy went down and invaded. You had a lot of amphibious assaults in the Civil War, which had not been done a lot, storming beaches and using a combined um, effort between the Navy and the Army and transports on a very large scale. But the inventions that come up, the, Iron the clads. ironclads and the sloping armor and the pivoting turret and different types of cannons and different types of ammo come out of it. And then the friggin' submarine, the South um, really 
was kind of pushed to have to come up with some new technology and inventions because they had no Navy at all. They, they got a little bit that they salvaged from Norfolk Naval Yard when it was burned, when the North fled there. And they had, you know, private side wheel steamers and stuff that people owned, like commerce ships that they tried to arm and tried to rebuild. And, but they're basically made a Navy from scratch. Um, there's three really good examples. Uh, the first would be the Virginia. Um, this was a ship that was called the Merrimack, and it was a twin ship with a northern vessel called the Minnesota. And the former captain of the Minnesota, he's from New York. His name was William Parker, but he defected to the south for who knows why. He ended up founding the College of Maryland later, but he defected to the south and was um, on a little tiny ship called the Beaufort that actually towed the Virginia into Hampton Roads up the Elizabeth River. And then he'd participate in that battle and fight against his own former ship, the Minnesota. But the and it was the an ironclad. Was this ship called the? It had been called the Merrimack that had been burned all the way to the waterline, and they took the hull of the ship and they added this just iron beast. They didn't even have the machinery to punch through more than an inch of iron. So what they did is they they get they punch through an inch of iron on a plate, then get another plate punch through that, and then line the holes up and put a bolt through it to where that to where they could get two three inches of iron just held in by these giant bolts. And then that went through two feet of wood on the other side. So the armor was insane. They got some Brooks rifles and. They sloped the armor. They tested it there in the harbor, shooting at it at different angles until they figured out what would deflect cannonballs the most. And it was between 30 and 33 degrees, which end up being on tank turrets and stuff later. But they, they went out with the, it couldn't have been more successful when they took that ironclad out to fight these wooden ships. They rammed the Cumberland, which was the flagship of the Atlantic squadron for the North killed 121 people, broke it in half, sank without any damage to themselves. The the Congress, which is a ship of over 50 cannons, they were able to um, destroy that without losing anybody. They finally lost some guys when the Congress surrendered. It was on fire, and they were trying to get the Yankees off of them there so they wouldn't burn to death. They'd surrendered the white flag. You'd take them in and just put them in jail or whatever. And they sent over the Beaufort that – boat that William Parker had been on and that there was a land battery from Indiana that particularly hated the Beaufort and its crew because the Beaufort had um, kicked their ass down in North Carolina a few months ago. And so they opened up fire, even though they were taking prisoners off of this ship and they ended up killing five of their own Yankees um, firing on the group as they're like ship to ship with a plank between take, trying to take, guys off this burning ship and the ship ends up exploding and a, like 400 more northerners die they didn't need to they could have been rescued off the ship because once they got fired on the south backed off and started fighting with the land battery instead um another good example that and then it, you know the story they fight to monitor the next day and they mess up the minnesota and a bunch of other ships but another for good the, example, for the audience sake the monitor is a northern ironclad that yeah. fought the merrimack and there had been ironclads have been built in Europe, but this is the first time that ironclads actually fight each other. Yeah. And of course, uh, the monitor had a, a pivoting turret, which that was a first. 
Yeah. And then the Mary Mac has sloped armor, which was a first. Twin propellers. Um, it, there's a lot of, a lot <laughs> that went on. The, uh, the Hunley, which is not the first submarine in the world, but is the first submarine to be used in combat. It wasn't even the first Confederate submarine. They built one um, in New Orleans called the Pioneer. They never got a chance to use because New Orleans was sacked so early in the war. And then they built another one, Pioneer 2, which sank. And they eventually um, settled on the Hunley, which is almost identical to the first two, with just a few upgrades. And that one sank three times. <laughs> but uh, it did manage to go out and, and sink a northern ship. And that I've seen it. I've gone down there and looked at it because they found it in the 90s and pulled it up. These mofos had a hand-cranked, propeller they were sitting inside of a metal capsule basically on a half of a bench with this giant crank in front of them and five or six of them sat there and cranked between their legs the propeller so they could move and they had a, a pilot in the front and some dive fins on the side i mean it was like trying to fly a kite the way that those dive fins worked um and they, they had, you know, tested it a few times and killed a couple of crews. And they did blow up some uh, some fake, you know, target ships in the harbor. And they knew it worked. But it's hard to hand crank a mile. And they're not going very fast. And the Union sat at least a mile off so that the artillery around Charleston didn't get them. And finally, they, they found a target that was close enough in. And it, it was so late in the war, they knew it wasn't going to make a whole lot of difference, but they'd spent so much time trying to figure this thing out, and they had one, figured they could chalk one up, so they did it. And it, there's kind well, of did a, force the North to uh, increase their another distance. Another mile, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which led them to quit bombing Charleston uh, as much because they were farther away, because they bombed them 24 hours a day for months. I mean, just stupid, but... Um, when the, the sub is kind of a mystery because they, they rammed the uh, Housatonic with this charge that was uh, out on a giant hole, basically, in front of the sub. And then when they backed up, they pulled the lanyard, and I think it was 70 pounds of gunpowder blew a hole in the side. And after that, they had to surface and flash a, a lantern that was blue to some guys that were on the shore. And who had already built a bonfire and they're just waiting to touch it off with a torch and light this giant beacon so that the sub knew where to go to to come home so it had a point of reference because it was so dark they waited for a cloudy dark night obviously to help them with the stealth in the first place and so the the lantern was spotted and they did light the beacon but they never came home so everybody thought the sub probably sank somewhere between the ship that it sank and the beach because it was obviously heading back to that beach. Um, but that's not where they found it. They found it um, farther out to sea, which is strange. And then they found evidence inside the sub, sub of these kind of stalagmites that were made from rust. And that doesn't happen unless it's dry inside. So they suffocated to death on the bottom without drowning. But it doesn't make any sense because there were these simple levers that are like a giant Allen wrench that you could just turn and lift 
and it would release these weights that were on the side of the sub. So if they were having trouble getting off the bottom, the first thing you would do is release the weights. And they'd all practiced and done this in the pitch black and they drilled for over a year doing this. Why didn't they pull it? And it is really, um, no one knows the answer to the fate of the Hun League. They, they found all the guys, they got enough artifacts on all the guys that proved beyond a doubt who they were. And they kind of even know where they were sitting. There's a gold coin that one of them had that took a bullet at Shiloh and saved this guy's life. And it, there was already a story about it before he even went down and they found that coin. It's, it's a cool one. But uh, the Albemarle Ram too is a, another insane story where they built an ironclad in a cornfield uh, out of boilerplates and railroad ties. It was a 19 year old that built the steam engines inside of it. A 19 year old kid named Elliot Mac from Louisiana. was his name MacGyver. No. <laughs> it should have been. <laughs> and they went down and of course rammed and sank the south field and the um the yankees were waiting for them they had two ships with a chain net linked between the two they were going to catch the ironclad in it so it was immobile and they had specially ordered these guns from new york that fired over 100 pound shots we actually have that whole story up on a i got a new website called dawsontime.com and it, it goes over a lot of the naval battles because that was so crucial in the war like mcclellan's plan uh, would have worked to soup because that's what they end up doing. But Lincoln was running against him to to become president. Yeah. So he wouldn't Grant allow him wanted to do it. To, <laughs> Grant wanted to copy the plan, plan was to to go into uh, with the Navy into Virginia around like Williamsburg and head up the James River with the assistance of the Navy, which is what they eventually did. But it, he wouldn't. Lincoln wouldn't let him do it because it was McClellan's plan, and he had been against it before. And he was in this election and Grant said, it'll cost me this many thousand more lives if I don't do it that way. And Lincoln said, so be it. I mean, that that's all. And Grant wrote this down. So this, that's terrible. That's to terrible. To show wow. you how bad Lincoln was, like uh, where we were saying that the terrors of the war in Andersonville, Georgia, it's a prison where because of what Sherman was doing, uh, a lot like bombing Dresden in World War II, they ran out of food and guess who suffers first the prisoners all of the guards didn't eat any more than the prisoners and 12,000 uh and change i think 12,500 yankees would starve to death and many on their way to starvation would die of typhoid and typhus and the things that happen when you're malnourished and the south offered to release them that if you if you bring a northern ship We'll, we'll, we're not even going to do a prisoner exchange. First, they tried to exchange it for prisoners. They said no. They said, you know what? You can just have them. And Lincoln still said no because it was a burden on the South to have to feed them. So he didn't let them die. That's the type of psycho you're dealing with. And it was pretty clear. I mean, Sherman's on his march. There was no reason to sacrifice these people. None. Then you look at northern prisons that had food no one was up there salting crops and burning down cities and they just refused to feed them anyway yeah chicago on had purpose some, mm -hmm. some of the worst ones it's, it's well, terrible there was a lot of journalists there there were prisons full of journalists in the north right yeah yeah before the war even Couple started judges. Lincoln arrested 
over 300 newspapers and it, it was a total dictator and he, if you this whole kind of mythology we're taught in like second grade fourth grade about lincoln being this great emancipator and they even change his voice he's always got a deep sound and you know every description said he had a high squeaky voice that cracked he had every- malfander syndrome mm-hmm. so there's no way his voice was deep uh but he had a squeaky voice and they always change it and they, everything about all, I've seen I've seen plaques that say, like and in American history he's like next to Jesus like you can't say anything bad about him but the a real person is uh nowhere near this the image that you are taught as a kid none of the founding fathers are I mean come on you know you get a very very pro-American um bullshit. I don't think you do anymore I think you get the exact opposite where they demonize them beyond belief uh the things i've heard from millennials about the founding fathers they don't know jack about any of them and it's just this it, because everything's identity politics now so it's just uh sexist homophobic racist blah 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 and like nothing counts although okay you know socrates was probably a pedophile that doesn't undermine uh, his philosophy Einstein married his cousin, didn't know better. I don't think that undermines his science. Like you can find flaws in people from the past that aren't going to hold up to today's standards. Especially if you're using today's like, moral stick to judge mm-hmm. him by. Sure. But there are some really great, uh, you know, there's some, some really defiant heroes out of that war. Uh, like your General Lee or before the war, people like uh, John Randolph or John Calhoun. What John Calhoun was saying for nullification is valid now that some states are talking about using against the NSA. But he put things so elegantly, and he was the vice president. He said the whole system of legislation imposing duties on imports, not for revenue, but for the protection of a branch of one industry at the expense of others is unconstitutional, unequal and oppressive and a calculated to corrupt the public virtue and destroy liberty of the country. Can you imagine Trump or Biden even saying that sentence? You know, like <laughs> the way that the things have degenerated uh, from the past to now, if you read, you know, Washington's farewell address or Eisenhower, which wasn't that long ago. And then you compare it to Bush Jr., or Clinton, and it, or you know, or Joe Biden might be the worst ever. I mean, I thought Sarah Palin was bad. It went like Dan Quayle, Palin, Biden. It's embarrassing. And Palin I feel like was we're nice losing to look it. at though. I I just I feel like we're losing our grip of our republic because we don't have strong roots. Good, bad, and ugly. It doesn't matter. I mean, history, that's how history. You're not you're not saying all these people are saints or anything, but you have to know your roots and your heritage and it's like a war on the past because it's not up to our standards of everything and when you erase it you make it able that others can rewrite it but you lose your roots and it we're becoming just consumeristic degenerate like trolls donald trump called kim jong-il rocket man and he called <laughs> elizabeth warren pocahontas which is funny in a sophomoric asinine way but it's not funny because that's the president of the united states and this is where we're going and biden should 
maybe he'll be the next one, depending on what happens with the Supreme Court or whatever. No better. Um, you know, call, telling the, calling the president a racist, telling him to shut up during the debate, say, keep your yakking. I'll take somebody behind the, uh, the bleachers and beat them up. That, that, who says that? You're 78 years old. Well, you don't, well, I'll take you behind a gym. It's like bend you over my knee, son. You, know, you would never hear even Lincoln talk like that, right? At least he was elegant in it and had a vocabulary and was articulate. Even if he had a squeaky voice and he was a tyrant and he didn't care about life, you know, at least he wasn't stupid. Uh, but what we're getting now is just yeah. AOC, right? How did she get elected? How? You know, well, the, you know, the earth is gone in 10 years. <laughs> well, well, you know, it, Americans are supposed to be against elites, but I think it was Tucker Carlson who said, I'm not against elite. He's like, I want, if we're going to have elites, I want to have impressive elites. And okay. back <laughs> and back then, you know, there were elites, but even the scumbag elites, they were impressive. They had impressive vocabularies. They had impressive intellects. Nowadays, mm -hmm. it's just, I mean, it's a, it's bread and circuses. I mean, that's I tell you a funny quote that Donald Trump said to Epstein. Okay. Cause I, I probably know too much about Epstein. This is well, 14 years. I've been after these pedophile rings, but something I thought was a little funny was, uh, Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, world renowned pedophile. Now he was with Donald Trump and another individual and he wanted to sh Trump's like, let's, let's stop at Atlantic city. And, uh, Epstein's like, Oh no, no, that's all. Just, it's just all white trash down there or something. And the, the guy said, what's white trash. And Donald Trump said, it's like me with no money. <laughs> <laughs> He's being self-deprecating, but kind of true at the same time. Well, you know, and that's and that's one of the reasons that the not the conniving left, but the reactionary left really hates him is because, you know, Obama, Obama was this picture of class in the White House. And now you have this guy in there who, you know, is just going to embarrass us like, you know, the, the really embarrassing dad. I think there's a certain segment of the left that just saw him, um, saw him that way, saw him as, um, you know, just a playboy as I think they hate him because he's uh masculine and he married a supermodel he's six foot four and he's a billionaire and they're just jealous as hell that someone like that can have all that and they can't well he also talks like a re retard man i mean <laughs> if you just listen to him at, at all that doesn't matter because they backed aoc and lots of people that sound a lot dumber it's no, that's not the thing no trump it's takes the cake man no, no, not come on. A bit. Cortez. <laughs> he is no. pulling us out of Afghanistan. So like, while I, I can I mean, tolerate. Ilhan Omar is basically how he is. Yeah, she married her brother. I mean, <laughs> it can go way lower. Yeah. <laughs> I like some of the things. Trump pulled out of the Paris Accords. That was good. He ended NAFTA, uh, which was good. He ended TPP where he never let it yeah. get off the ground. That was good. He did a lot of deregulation. He did lower taxes. He built a wall, which I didn't care about, but it was one of his promises. So he kept his promise, which is unusual for a politician. Um, and he tried to withdraw troops from Syria. And now we find out that Jim Jeffries and others just lied to him about the numbers. 
Um, but they were after him from the very start. Like I, the, the guy in his administration I was most excited about until McGregor, which is only recently, was Michael Flynn. Because when Michael Flynn was head of the DIA, he correctly made the assessment that under Hillary and Kerry State Department that the U.S. was openly funding al-Qaeda in Syria, and that was the goal. Like, they didn't even try to hide it. So they went after him before Trump was even sworn in, right? They went after Flynn. He'll probably get a pardon. But the DIA was one of the only three-letter networks that was honest. CIA, no. FBI, hell no, right? The DIA was the only one that gave a real assessment of the war in Syria, which Trump did not continue. He cut off all aid to al-Qaeda in June of 2017 uh, after meeting with Putin. And then he did some dumb things, too. He assassinated Soleimani, which could have started a war with Iran. He you know, continue, allowed Saudi Arabia to butcher Yemen. He did countless drone strikes. Uh, and, of course, he was you know, moving to the, uh, the capital to Jerusalem, which he didn't. He moved the embassy. The capital still Tel Aviv. But, you know, he, he's uh, definitely a Zionist. But um, compare that to the last administration that made slavery great again in Libya, started a coup in Ukraine, started the whole war in Syria, attacked Somalia, Mali, put a military presence, 35 countries in Africa, tripled the size of the war in Afghanistan. Like the death counts just off the chart. $28 trillion in bailouts for Wall Street pay to play all day. They did nothing right for eight years, right? I can't think of anything they did right. Even the Iran deal, that was the Europeans. Uh, so it was, and it was never really done because they kept saying, oh yeah, in six months we'll come inspect again. And then they would come back and they go, well, now another six months. So that was even BS. There was nothing they did right. Whereas I, with Trump, I can list a handful of things that were actually good for the United States. I can't do that with Biden and Obama or Bush or Clinton, like none of them, right? And so that's right. why the establishment. He got his college them. playoffs for football. That's true. That's- yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> let, let me reel this in. Let me reel this in because we're off. I want to ask one more, uh, one more um, war of northern aggression question. Um, it's commonly believed that up to a certain point in the war, the South was winning. Is that true? And what turned it around? Yeah, that is definitely true. There, the South's real hopes pinned on McClellan winning the election against Lincoln because even though he was a former Northern general, he wanted peace. He was going to let the South go. And they, they needed to – the South wasn't completely naive about reality. They knew they could never invade and like, conquer Boston or whatever. They, they were dealing against the stack deck from the very beginning as far as resources and number of troops and industry and every possible category there is. But they won somehow. They just continued to win on the field, and they knew all they really needed were just a few big victories in a row, and McClellan would win because every time the South won another big victory, the Northern public would, became – more and more distraught and right before the something else too because they all thought we're gonna lick them real fast yeah and the north didn't win any battles for about a year and a half i mean the whole beginning of the war the south was sticking it to them but the the south could not the west in, in the east in virginia when the main campaigns were and they they knew they couldn't have a protracted war they didn't have the industry and they weren't able to gather uh, 
resources because of the blockades. Uh, only like Wilmington and North Carolina remained opened up until January of 1865. Every other port was cut off, you know, pretty quickly on the water. But on the land, it was, you know, there was Bull Run, Southern Victory, like it just one after another. But they they were just putting all of it in, trying to get to those midterms and get to that 1864 election. And, you know, in the uh, midterm elections, the Republicans lost 22 seats. And Lincoln didn't even run for re-election as a Republican. He joined the National Unionist Party instead, which is a little bit like today because it was all the pro-war Democrats and uh, Republicans. So it was kind of like your neocons and uh, establishment Democrats today. They're all interventionists. And you can see them gang up on their own, right? Yeah. When uh, when Kucinich or Massey or like Tulsi Gabbard was anti-war, they all they called her a Russian asset and they all piled on her and were against her. And uh, the Republicans did the same thing to Ron Paul. Ron Paul, Republican in name, pretty much a libertarian, but he was completely anti-war. And so they're like, oh, racist newsletters and all this garbage and just smeared Ron Paul. And both Democrats and Republicans did that to Tulsi and both of them did it to Ron. Uh, the real division is isolationist or peace versus interventionist. And Lincoln's new party was the interventionist. And it was the worst elements of both parties. That's what he ran on because the North voted against Republicans uh, because that's what started the war and they were losing seats. And the only reason he was able to get reelected is from cheating. Use force. He sent soldiers to the polls and things. So yeah, he used, he used the army straight up to steal it. But what happened was the, well, South, the South did not yes, have they the were manufacturing winning. for bullets and so forth. But they won tactically. They won on the field. They had better generals. They were never up by more than a touchdown. You know, in the East they were winning um, most of the war, but in the West they were almost always losing. Probably the height I mean, for the South. It was took six attempts to take Vicksburg, though. I mean, they won the first five. Uh, and they won the first one by, you know, blazingly. And then in the East, of course, even before Lee took the helm with uh, when you had Stonewall Jackson and Beauregard and others at Bull Run, it was very embarrassing because the North was sending 75,000 troops down there and they got turned around. And they all thought it was going to be over quick and it just wasn't. And uh, they just buckled down instead. But the South um, wasn't going to be able to feed and maintain that army. They were running out of shoes, like basic uniforms, uh, horses. They had to cut the feed on the horses, how much they could feed. They were actually looking forward to a battle with the North so that they could steal their shoes and horses and and, and munitions and things. That's how they were clothing themselves. Because they're like, oh, whipping the Yankees, no problem. It's lasting through the winter. That's the problem. They just, they didn't have it. And they didn't have enough rail lines. That's how they got half of their cannons. Yep. Yeah, half their cannons they took from the north. They didn't have the rail lines to be moving supplies up and down like the north did. They had to rely on horses. Well, rails are superior to horses. Um, the good thing about a horse is you can't just cut the rail line, but it's a lot slower and a lot less cargo. And there wasn't enough manufacturing down south. There was really Virginia was the most popular state at the time. Texas and Florida were nothing. It's not like today. Uh, it was Virginia and North Carolina, and they had some big cities in Georgia and uh, 
even out west, like Tennessee was still just a baby at the time. Alabama, Mississippi, along the river, there was some some population, but not much. So, uh, and Virginia had lost a big chunk of its state to that became West Virginia, although a lot of them still did fight on the Confederate side. West Virginia was sort of a blue and gray state, and uh, so was Tennessee, actually. Some of East Tennessee fought for the North, and some of the, the largest division at the end of the war for the Union Army were from North Carolina. So the North Carolina soldiers fought on both sides, even though the state did secede and they were part of the South. One of the largest regiments in the Union Army were from Western North Carolina. Yeah, oh. and and the East as well, but um, the first and second Union volunteers were for all from the Outer Banks in that area. That, and there were a lot of troops from Kentucky and Maryland that fought for the South too. It was a, a more of a camouflage looking map than the one you get with this line down the middle. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they basically, they lost early with the Navy, uh, with the ports and they just didn't have the supplies or logistics. And even if you have a superior commanders, better tactics and you're on the defensive and you can give some devastating blows, Lincoln just replaced this with mercenaries. I mean, if uh, Lee killed about half a million Yankees, well, uh, there were over 250,000 Irish and 200,000 Germans in the Union Army. So there was almost half a million foreigners in the Union Army. So you, Lee just saw it as pointless slaughter to continue. Like, yeah, I can kill half a million more, but what good it'll do? It'll, it'll just buy some more people. Yeah, when that election, right? they knew all hopes were gone. When Lincoln got reelected, it was like, we can't do this. So they killed him. <laughs> forever. So they shot him. Yeah, but, <clears throat> sorry to laugh at that, but I don't have a lot of sympathy for Lincoln. They blame Mrs. Lincoln. She's like, you never take me to the theater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ever since this war. <laughs> I don't know. It's <clears throat> but... It is what it is. And his vice president ran under the Union Party, too. So all these people today, they're like, Lincoln was a Republican, if they're a Republican. Or the Democrats, like, yeah, but it was switched, and he was really a Democrat. It's like, no, nah, he was neither. They, they just got rid of all pretense of that, made a new party, and it was just the war party is essentially what it was. Yeah. <laughs> no one, well, man. One of these days, I got to have you guys on to talk about Reconstruction. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's that's my bread and butter stuff there. So yeah, it'd be good. I have trouble reading about it. It makes me so mad. Yeah, that's same here. And it I'm not right into the Indian Wars too. It's so awful. It's so awful that it, that's why it skimmed over. Yeah, it doesn't matter where you're from. Like anyone that's reasonable can look at this and go, "This is horrible. <laughs> this is uh, yeah. pointless. It could, the whole thing could have been avoided. Slavery was being phased out anyway." Um, but you know, in a sense, when Lincoln was assassinated and reconstruction was so bad, but, uh, those tariffs did disappear. So they got something. <laughs> I've lived in Georgia for 15 years now and, you know, go around, I see the Confederate plaques and everything. I've stood at the spot where Sherman stood when he was watching Atlanta burn and everything. And it's, it's pretty infuriating when you, um, when you really start looking at it. Who would burn a city full of people? 
Like, what kind of monster does that? Women, babies, everything. Let's well, they locked the city. a bunch of people up in a church in North Carolina and then put timbers on the door and lit the church on fire. After they made them kiss the American flag and swear to be in the union, they burned a bunch of women and kids to death inside of a church. Put people in chains and starved them on purpose and paraded them around and be like, look at these raggedy bunch. And they were, uh, they were pro union Southerners, but the union had lost the battle. So they just went and grabbed a bunch of civilians at random who, who came out to give them pies and stuff. They're like, we're American, right? They put them in chains and paraded them around up north. Like, look at these Southerners we caught because they needed the PR. Yeah. Because they were losing. It's just little things that you don't know. Let crowds throw bottles at them and stuff. You could pay to punch them. It was, mm-hmm. it was just sick. Sick. And they want us to be upset. Of you Remember the um, Gaddafi was giving his troops Viagra so that, you know, they could keep the mass rapes going further. It's like, come on, oh, Jesus! Come on. It, you, you listen to that, and it's just like, oh, we know this is we we know this is propaganda, propaganda, and everything. And then it's like, no, shit like that actually happened in the United States. <laughs> yeah, There's, what's the thing is that over the top mad stuff. Uh, they would have done that if they'd had Viagra back then, but they, I mean, there's like people caught with bags full of wedding rings where they'd stolen all the rings off of people. And then of course they got raped and uh, it's horrible. And uh, it, it continued on where they're putting bounties on the heads of people for American Indians, where you could just kill a mother and get your silver. And then they had the, the Dawes act and the religious crimes act. And they put the last Yanni Indian in a museum in California. And the newspaper said stone age man found and this is not in the 1800s. This is in the 1900s. There are airplanes and things at this point, and they're still acting like that. I always say science seems to advance because you can pass the knowledge on. Uh, but socially, you have to start back at zero every time there's a new generation. So we don't, we're always just barbarians with fancier tools. Right? <laughs> it just started by throwing rocks, and now we shoot artillery at each other. But the, the pointlessness of all the fighting and bloodshed just never sinks in. And a lot of it is worse now because as militaries became mechanized, the war itself is the industry. It's not a particular resource. It's Lockheed Martin. It's Boeing. It's Raytheon. It's Northrop Grumman. It's General Dynamics. How much is a cruise missile? $1.4 million. All right, lob 100 of them. It doesn't matter if it's effective, whatever. It's just a way of soaking up government wealth. And what Lincoln did, starting with the railroads and the expansion, which was genocide, uh, and subsidizing industries was the birth of the marriage between corporation and state. And cheap plug, I have a book on Amazon called The Separation of Business and State with the sort of solutions I think we need, realistic things that could be implemented. But it really shows... Everything the government gets involved in, it just makes it worse and more expensive at the minimal. There's sometimes a lot worse than just being more expensive. But everything they do, and even the protective tariffs, it always come back on them. And if you don't study history, if you don't look at the tariff issue, then you don't learn about the tariff issue and you don't learn uh, about interventionist policies and how you need free markets that's what works. That what is going to increase the quality of life 
for the average citizen like and lower your cost of living and up your quality of life is having market competition in free markets. And it's always a struggle because every time the government comes in and starts selecting favorites, right? Whether it's the weapon industry, like today it would be weapons, drugs, and energy. And that includes green energy, right? They come in and they try and pick winners and losers. It just makes everything worse and more expensive. And real market competition leads to innovation. That's how you end up with submarines and ironclads when there's enough demand, right? <laughs> but um, that if the takeaway from the Civil War really is saying it was the death of free enterprise in the United States. And, and General Lee warned about that. He said, if we lose this cause, I'm afraid it will be imperialism abroad and depotism at home. And boy, did he get it right. Yeah. Rothbard said it was the Civil War is the last just war America fought and the wrong side won. Fortunately. Right. Um, how how can people support you? I know that it's <laughs> do you have something set up that's like concrete now or are you yeah. I do and I share with my brother. It's um because I've been kicked off of PayPal, Patreon, all that stuff for because of I don't allow I using Interpol, very, right? very I'm very, very opposed to murdering Palestinians over nothing. Although today <laughs> I gotta say this because this is a golden frog moment. The uh God's chosen lunatics flipped a tank over. They were trying to park a tank on I guess some big truck that carries tanks around and they veered off to the left too much, so it rolled over upside down. They're all running around. What do we do? Uh, it's always fun when you see that. Last week, they were shooting uh, tear gas at Palestinians, and somebody fired it the wrong way, and they went in their Jeep, and they gassed themselves. <laughs> like, you love How it can when I empires support you, Robbie? Supporting is from ancreport.com. You can become a member. And we have a payment processor that hasn't kicked us off yet. And if you catch our live streams on my YouTube, you can use the entropy link to donate and ask questions. So that's where we are. And we have a brand new site called DawsonTime.com. And I'm going to be setting something up there so that people can, uh, can donate and get some sort of membership there. That's the brand new site. It's only got four videos up and two articles, but I'll be working on it this week. But the main way is ancreport.com. You can sign up for $5 a month. That's like one expensive coffee, you know, for the whole month. But it adds up and it really helps us out. Good to have you on again, Ryan. And Scott, good to meet you. And uh, hopefully we can talk again. All right. Thanks, guys. Will do. Thank you very much. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. I want to thank Ryan and Scott for coming on. That's it. Be back in a few days with another episode. Take care and bye.